The passage we just read is God's diagnosis of humanity. He says that all of us are sick, not with COVID, but with sin, and that the problem is much worse than we like to imagine. Not only is the sin a result of diseases like COVID, it's also the result of wars and every other problem in the world, the results of our sinful choices. It is a problem, we're told, that will kill us in the end, and that we are powerless to do anything about. It's a diagnosis that people, all people everywhere, have had a hard time swallowing. I met a student years ago, came into my office one day and said, my dad's Christian, my mother's Buddhist, I don't know which one I am, can you explain Christianity to me? And I said, well, yeah, I think I can do that. God, he said, I'm with that. Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm with that too. God made the world and everything in it. Yes, I'm with you. But when we got to the heart of the gospel, that our problem is moral, and it is so big that the only hope that we have is that the Son of God becomes one of us and dies to pay the price for our forgiveness and for the restoration of the world. And he said, I just can't believe that things are that bad. Adam says something similar in Genesis 3. When God asked him, did you do what I told you not to do? He didn't respond by saying, yes, I have sinned against you. He responds with two things that have nothing to do with sin at all. First, well, I realized I'm naked. And second, the woman that you gave me, (laughs) she gave me some of the fruit and I did eat it. As long as there have been sinful people, we have found God's diagnosis to our problem hard to believe, hard to accept, And if it's not real, if sin is not so, the gospel is pointless. In this little book, Beyond Identity, written by an old friend of mine, Dick Kyes, he recounts a story in which he had shared the gospel with a man, and the man responded by saying, I didn't ask Jesus to die for me. I think that's highly manipulative. Now, Think about it for a moment. Let's say we are outside on Alexander after the service. We're talking. A bus is coming. You don't see it. You wander out into the street. And the only thing that I can do to save you is shove you out of the way and sacrifice my own life. Let's change the story a little bit. We go out to Alexander after the service. And I turn to you. There's no traffic in sight. You say, the next bus that comes along, I'm going to throw myself in front of the bus to show you just how much I love you. You'd think, I'm crazy, and rightly so. If the cross of Jesus doesn't save us 
from something, from sin, then it's manipulative too. Like many of your friends and neighbors, Dick's friend had no personal awareness of sin at all. He found the whole idea insulting, repulsive. He was like Sigmund Freud, the famous Austrian psychologist who wrote in a letter to his friends. I will add that I have no dread at all of the Almighty. If we were ever to meet, I would have more reproaches to make of him than he could to me. For I have to tell you that I've always been dissatisfied with my gifts and know precisely in what regards they are lacking, but that I consider myself to be a very moral person. I believe that in the sense of justice and consideration of others, in disliking making others suffer or taking advantage of them, I can measure myself with the best people I've ever known. And I've never done anything mean or malicious, and I cannot trace any temptation to do so, but I'm not in the least bit proud of it. (laughs) People have always had a hard time believing the gospel, but they found it implausible at times for different reasons. In Jesus' day, the Jews had a hard time believing in a Messiah who would die for them. They wanted a Messiah to come and get rid of the Romans. A dead Messiah is not going to get rid of the Romans, and he's not going to do anything for them. The Greeks that followed the Jews had a hard idea with the incarnation. They loved a God who had nothing to do with matter, and the idea of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us was repulsive to them. In our day and age, the stumbling block is sin. We find it hard to be- harder to believe in than ever before. A question that I'd like to consider this evening is why? And the answer, at least in part, has to do with the nature of sin. What Dick Kyes calls the genius of sin is its ability to hide itself from us. C.S. Lewis said it like this, Sin and error share the same property, that the more deeply you are involved in either, the less you suspect their existence. Cornelius Plantinga put it like this, Our hearts are corrupt. They keep pumping out malice and whitewash. And in the book of Revelation, John, to the church in Laodicea, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Sin creates a moral fog in our own mind that blinds us to its presence, its nature, its depth, its breadth, its scope, and its consequences. And it does this by changing the way we look at ourselves. Sins described in different ways at different times in the Bible as rebellion, as lawlessness, 
as make, missing a mark or being led astray. But at the heart of all of these descriptions, at the heart of sin itself, is pride. In Genesis 3, what was the serpent's temptation to Eve? You get to be God. You get to choose what's right and wrong. It's an attractive prospect for most of us. Bertrand Russell was a 20th century philosopher Englishman who put it like this in the intro to his book, Power. Of the infinite dreams of man, the chief are the desires for power and glory. Every man would like to be God, if it were possible. Some few find it difficult to admit the impossibility. Now, are you offended in any way by Russell's pride? You shouldn't be. Because what the scriptures say is what's true of him is also true of each one of us. Sin, by its very nature, makes us think we're better than we really are. The serpent promised Eve that if she ate the fruit, that her eyes would be open. In a way, there's a great irony to it because exactly the opposite is true. Sin not only closes my eyes to its existence in me, it inspires me to blind you too. Which is more important to you? That other people have a good impression of you or a true impression of you? How much of your time and effort is devoted to making sure that other people do not get a true impression of you? Impression management is something that we all spend lots of time and effort on. And you know the rules. Anything you deny or excuse cannot be used against you. In perhaps the most extreme form of denial takes the form of atheism. There is no sin because there is no God. Franz Kafka writes about being a guilty criminal brought into the courtroom only to discover that there was no judge on the bench, nobody to condemn him. More moderate forms of denial put it a little more subtly. God exists, they would say, but he doesn't care about what I'm doing. Psalm 94. The psalmist speaks of men who slay the widow and the alien and murder the father, saying, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Even God's people indulge in denial. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, probably you know the story. He was at one time in his life the captain of a slaving ship. What you may not know is that he continued to be the captain of a slaving ship for years after he became a Christian. And when he quit, it was not because the Lord convicted him of the sin of doing so. It was because it was bad for his health. It was only years later, after he had written Amazing Grace, 
that he came to realize how sinful it was. Sin blinds even believers to its presence. It causes us at times even to hide our sins behind a concern for goodness. Bear with me here for a moment while I explain. Langdon Gilkey is best known for his work as a professor at the University of Chicago, but in 1935, he was in an internment camp in China, placed there by the Japanese, along with 2,000 other people, including Eric Liddell of Chariots of Fire fame. Nobody had enough food. And then one day, quite miraculously out of the blue, a whole pile of parcels from the American Red Cross arrived. And the argument immediately became, since these came from the American Red Cross, should only Americans be allowed to have them? Gilkey describes the conflict like this. One man says, don't misunderstand me. I'm not worried about the parcels, about how many I or other Americans may get. I couldn't care less. With me, it's the legal principle that counts. This is American property. Simple, isn't it? You can't question that. You see, this property can only be administered by Americans and not by the enemy. We've got to make sure that in this hellhole, whatever price we have to pay in popularity, that the rights of American property are preserved and respected. Come to think of it, we've also got to be faithful executors of the American Cross donors who sent these here for our use. But mind you, I speak as a professional lawyer. For myself, I really don't care how many parcels I get. This is more than sin. This is hiding sin behind a concern for goodness. Our sin blinds us to its present by moving it to deny ourselves both in ourselves and to others. And of course, when denials fail... Excuses are a wonderful alternative. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God gave Saul's army a victory over the Amalekites, but instead of destroying the plunder as God had instructed him to do, he kept the best of it for himself and his friends. And then when the prophet shows up and criticizes Saul for his sin, he defends himself by saying, the Lord bless you. I've carried out everything the Lord told me to do. I've done exactly what he wanted. And then Samuel says, well, if you've done exactly what he wanted, what is this bleating of sheep and mooing of cows that I hear in my ears? And then he resorts to excuses. Well, it was the people who insisted on it, and out of fear I gave it to them. I love excuses. The best thing about them is that they let me off the hook for the bad things that I do without taking any of the credit for the good things that I do. You notice that? David Myers is a psychologist and a Christian. He wrote in his book, The Inflated Self. Time and again, experiments reveal that people tend to attribute positive behavior to themselves and negative behaviors to external factors. 
enabling them to take credit for their good acts and deny responsibility for their bad acts. Perhaps this is why games that combine skill and chance are popular. Winners can easily attribute their success to their skill, while losers can just as easily attribute their loss to chance. When I win at Scrabble, it's because of my verbal dexterity. When I lose, it's because who could get anywhere with a Q without a U? My 14-year-old son recently won $25 by coming close to guessing the number of shoes stocked in a local shoe store. His guess was a wild stab in the dark. But upon hearing of his success, he immediately perceived himself as, quote, a skillful guesser end of quote, and announced that from now on, I'm going to enter all the guessing contests I can find. Why is it you never offer excuses for the good things you do? You know, the only reason I didn't lose my temper with you last night was because I was too tired. Yeah, the only reason I didn't punch you in the nose was because you're bigger than I am. I'm afraid you'd beat me up. Uh, I only paid you the money that I owed you because I was afraid of what others would think of me if I did not. You don't hear excuses like this because sin biases us in favor of ourselves. In the end, the only one who's consistently fooled by my excuses and my denials is me. They function like the water in the pond in my backyard when I lived in Massachusetts. It was a lovely pond. We liked to skate on it in the winter. No one paid any attention to the fact that underneath the water, there were huge piles of junk. I know that they were there because I put them there to get rid of them. Our old pond will probably never be drained and cleaned out. But thankfully, one day, I will be. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 10. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. One day, all my denials and excuses will be swept away. One day, all of my attempts at impression management are going to come to naught. Despite my best efforts, everything about me will be made known. Does this prospect frighten you? Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who invented Sherlock Holmes, is said to have set to six prominent members, uh, citizens in England, this telegram, all is known, flee at once, and that every one of them had left the country within three hours. When you drain an old pond, the junk in the bottom becomes visible. So too, when our excuses and denials are swept away, our sin remains. Dealing with that sin is what the work of Christ is all about.
He calls us to be undeceived about the nature and the depth of our sin. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet has a vision of God seated on the throne. And he responds by saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah doesn't offer any excuses. He points his finger at the right problem. The problem is that not that God is holy, The problem is that I am not. Our calling before God, as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, isn't simply to feel remorse and to be sorry. It's to see ourselves clearly as we really are. That's the first step in repentance. The second is realizing that we cannot fix our problem. Last year we had a week of winter, and people are still arguing about whose fault it was that we ran out of water and power. The impression is if we simply prepared better and tried hard enough, this wouldn't happen. Sin's not that way. It's a problem that's too big for us to solve. While we can, by God's grace, do a lot to heal and restore what's lost and broken by sin, in truth, the problem of sin in us and in the world is too big for us to handle. That's the second step. The third is trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, that God has, will, and is, through Him, redeeming us even now. C.S. Lewis put it like this in a sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory. In the end, the face of God, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with another, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain.
but so it is. Let's pray. Father, in this season of Lent, we pray with hesitation that you would make us more aware of the depth, the breadth, and the nature of our sin. Not so that we would be ashamed, but that by your grace we may repent, turn to you, know your love for us, and one day to share in Christ's glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.